I'm Lizanne Flynn. I'm a master healer who holds space for any earthling as they reunite body and soul. I'm a bridge for relationships between all species so that the heart bond becomes stronger, deeper, and more loving. I serve in the roles of animal communicator, medium, medical intuitive, and I use the tools of shamanic journeying and soul retrieval to support all earthlings in their recovery from past trauma. I'm certified as a Reiki master teacher and as a canine massage therapist. This is the Animals I View podcast. Before I forget, I wanted to update anyone who might be an Apple Podcast listener about how the episodes of this podcast are listed on that service. As you all know, podcasts have seasons and episodes within those seasons, and initially, a couple years ago, I was taking the word season literally. So I was numbering my podcast to correspond with the solstices and the equinoxes within a year. And, you know, that was fine with Apple for some reason for the first four seasons or so. And then it kind of went kablooey, (laughs) which is a technical term in energy for broken. And Apple stopped listing the episodes because I wasn't numbering them in a way that was copacetic for them. So I'm going to be renumbering the podcasts from 2023 and into 2024 with season X a number, defined as the year, meaning year one, season one, year two, season two. And I think I'm going on five years now. Uh, And then the episodes within that season, so I can get back on the wheel of the Apple podcast server in a way that makes sense to any listeners. My apologies for attempting to be too fancy, I think. After all, the best connection between two points, that being me and you all as my listeners, is a straight line without too many bells and whistles. So, thank you for your attention to this PSA, (laughs) and now we'll get on with the program. Throughout my second career of being a facilitator of self-healing for all earthlings, I've partnered with many different species of animals, and as well, different kinds of humans and their varied professions. This includes several scientists, a smattering of psychotherapists, a number of nurses and doctors, and everyone else in between. And it was the quote of a wildlife biologist who was a Reiki student of mine that stands out among these sciencey type of professionals, and that quote was, Wildlife management is an oxymoron, <laughs> which I thought was fabulous, and I still do. I borrow it, and I use it often. Because while we don't often think that humans whose vocational calling is in the human-centric application of energy small e as being open to topics of the metaphysical kind, they actually are the group of people on the planet on who the hopes of the animals overall are pinned, besides you and me. Because they're generally curious and they ask questions about things that strike them as being curious on this planet and beyond. And they're most willing to say, hey, we thought this at one point in time and now we can see that it needs to change, so we will change it. I said mostly willing because Laud knows humans in general and science specifically throughout the ages has not been kind to nor welcoming of those up-and-comers in their ranks. It's the curiosity, though, that keeps them going and wondering and asking, which is something that the animals truly do love about any type of human. Because they say, 
Maybe you'll come to a point where instead of thinking and believing you know it all, you'll allow your physical experience of the energy that's present to define for you a collective synergistic dynamic that's easily adaptable by most members of your species because it's general enough to cover all the bases and specific enough for you to keep on with your individual first, collective second mentality. And at least until you choose to decide that this last is not in your best interest or ours. The translation, of course, seems to be accompanied by a gusty sigh of, well, if that's the best you can do, along with a bit of impatience that we keep working this problem, this lack of inclusivity of all species on the planet. Sciency types really do seem to be the best option with religion, our other belief system, not even being on the table, period. Across the planet, you may be aware of organizations and individual people choosing to rewild, to bring back to its original state, a certain part of a geographical area, which means they're deliberately choosing to plant native plants and reintroduce animals of all different species into a space that these plants and animals originally came from. Here in Colorado, as I've talked about before, there has been the reintroduction of gray wolf, and naturally, there are dissenting voices about whether this species was ever an original part of the state to begin with, and other voices, most notably from ranchers, saying that wolf will hurt their livelihoods by killing too much of their stock, whether that's usually cow or sheep. And whether they want to admit it or not, that's the ageless tug of war between the apex predators and the wild. And until our species ran amok on the planet with unsustainable numbers in relation to available resources, it's it's just always been present. So that ranchers and farmers of a different time would perhaps automatically plan for this balance and rebalance of predator and available prey. It wasn't as if and not as if Wolf is canvassing their fellow packs and communicating and ganging up on mass to completely wipe out whole herds of cattle and sheep, leaving the ranchers completely destitute. Although, I think that's what the ranchers would love to have you think. And certainly, that's already been done and continues to be done by humans to animals, such as Wolf and Mountain Lion. I'll get to that in a minute which means there's some projection on the part of humans. There's a lack of fear in how an apex predator such as wolf or mountain lion lives within the unified duality on Earth. They don't fear a lack of abundance because to them it doesn't exist. They don't fear other apex predators because they know that the other predators have their back to a certain extent. They know that the lives of their fellow predator are dependent upon them to sustain and vice versa because they want to maintain and preserve what is present on earth for all species. So they work in unison together, taking what they need from their prey, knowing that prey also depends upon this taking to maintain the health of prey and therefore abundance. You've likely already heard stories in Western states about the organizing of hunts for wolf, and even more so since the reintroduction of wolf because of these rewilding efforts, conservation versus preservation, and because the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone, etc. Meaning, on the great wheel of nature, each cog 
predator and prey is connected to every other cog down to the smallest insect. That's why the wildlife management is an oxymoron, is so apt. Humans often have no business at all attempting to manage that which we are not a part of except as feeling victimized as prey whenever there's an errant mountain lion attack on one of our own at dusk or in the ocean as with a shark, when we are intruding on another apex predator's territory. We don't see it that way, but you can bet they certainly do see it that way. The Mountain Lion Note was from an editorial by a mountain lion hunter who uses packs of hounds to chase, corner, and tree mountain lion to kill. Because in their words, quoting from the article, If the numbers of mountain lion become too great, which is not going to happen, by the way, just a heads up, then their prey of elk and deer will suffer. And I'm guessing this is their illogical conclusion that the elk and deer will then become extinct or so low in numbers as to fail to reproduce a sustainable number, which, oh gosh, humans hunt as well. It was galling to me to read how hunting mountain lion, which is a rewilding, I would say, and I don't think that's a stretch, using dog gives researchers valuable information about the movements of the species and their behavior. It was galling to me to read how Mountain Lion was blamed for the increase in the aforementioned attacks on humans when, hello, we're the ones encroaching on their territories, and as we are clueless about both predator and prey behavior, We do take our stroll with companion animals unleashed at dusk. We do let our children play outside at dusk when our backyards open up to a rural open space. No other predator would hunt in another's territory, and no prey ventures out at dusk, period. Again, the oxymoron with heavy emphasis on the moron part. You have to wonder whether we know enough about the wild to be rewilding anything. The author of the Mountain Lion Hunting Editorial, to which I didn't respond in print and why you all are hearing about it now, also claims that the hunt is heavily regulated by Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and no one would dream of hunting illegally or taking up a rifle should mountain lion happen to be taking from the prey animals who are encroaching on their territory. As I said before, All of the other predators have an understanding about how to manage themselves. I can hear just now a variation of Cheech and Chong. We don't need no stinking humans to manage us. And to a certain extent, this rewilding, this attempt to bring back or give back to nature that which we took from her, is not taking indiscriminately out of fear or because we become fully immersed in our apex predator status, but because we recognize in hindsight that taking that which does not belong to us and destroying everything about it in order to have what we think is in our highest and best good will always, always, always have a domino effect about which we are so mindlessly ignorant. We think that because of our fairy tales, the big bad wolf is going to attack us sight unseen. Come on, how many movies have you seen like that? Or that mountain lion will reproduce like rabbit and become so uncontrollable that other species will become extinct and we'll have to arm ourselves just to walk around in our neighborhoods at high noon. Yes, all right. (laughs) 
I will give you that's a fair amount of hyperbole on my part. And at the same time, maybe you all can feel the fear that runs rampant because we have failed to appropriately balance our own apex predator and prey nature. We have failed to wild ourselves because we thought, keyword, that by thinking alone, we'd conquer the planet and all other species would submit to our rule, dominion over the animals and all that. I think it's accurate to state that we ache to feel that lick of wolf's tongue on our cheek and to run with them alongside the pack only because that lets us experience that wild in ourselves that we never ever should have ignored because we didn't like that aspect of ourselves. We vilified it. Certainly, the psychoanalysis on this one can run deep. And for those of you listening who have cat as companion animals, I know you know what I mean. (laughs) It's always a bit of a roll of the dice with cat. And honestly, that's the best part. Because we feel that uncertainty and we like it, there's no two ways about that. In the New York Times article that naturally was the genesis of this podcast, the subject was mostly about some golf courses that are getting rewilded. I put a couple of links in the podcast notes for the article itself and to get behind the New York Times paywall. The article mentions that, likely because of environmental concerns, the golf industry has, quote, taken steps to lighten its environmental toll in places by using less water, sowing pollinator-friendly plants, and decreasing pesticide and fertilizer use, which, of course, B will be quite happy about. That's my addendum. The article goes on to state that, quote, America's 16,000 golf courses use 1.5 billion gallons of water a day and are treated with 100,000 tons of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium a year. The U.S. also has, get this, more golf courses than McDonald's locations and also has more locations than any other country and accounts for 42% of all courses worldwide. We overbuilt here in the U.S. to satisfy a need, not unlike the mountain lion hunter, who sees their need to hunt another elusive apex predator, never mind the justification and damage that it does to the surrounding environment. And of course, to rewild a golf course, there has to be a conservation-minded buyer and a willing seller of something whose costs far outweigh the benefits. They'll probably never make back what they spent to begin with. And to be honest, while some may disagree, including my second son, I think golf is the most boring game in the world. I hardly think that it's a rewilding of self and nature because it has none of the wild in it, except for an errant gator or two down in Florida or Canada goose here in Colorado. It's too perfect with its manicured greens and the contrast of the sand traps or ponds hardly qualifies as true contrast according to the animals who agree with me that it's boring with everyone saying shh when someone is up to putt. A success story of rewilding has to be the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge here in Colorado, where, quoting from the article, settling on Native American hunting grounds, homesteaders saw a similar landscape, a roaming prairie, when they arrived in the late 1800s, then altered it as they started farming the land. Then the U.S. Army ousted 270 homesteads to build a munitions factory for the war effort in 1942. 
For the rest of the 20th century, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal was off-limits. It served as the site of manufacturing for a wide range of weapons, chemicals, and chemical weapons, with most of the world's nerve gas originating here during the early years of the Cold War, not to mention the wholesale disposal of a witch's brew of chemicals in an underground reservoir once thought to be causing earthquakes in Denver. The article continues with, Manufacturing gave way to cleanup and restoration in the 1980s. The 1986 return of bald eagles paved the way for the designation of refuge status six years later. It remains home to a few breeding pairs that nest here year-round, often along with migrating eagles that venture south in winter. It's fitting that this is the site of the National Eagle Repository, which handles dead eagles and, and distributes their feathers to Native Americans and Alaska Natives. The refuge, which opened to visitors in 2004, is one of the highest profile remediation sites in the country. It's hard to overstate just how big of an environmental success story the refuge represents with the cleanup and restoration, the return of native wildlife, and the subsequent public access to what is now one of the largest urban wildlife refuges nationwide. And I think this last part, urban wildlife refuges, is the crystalline point of rewilding. It brings the wildlife back to the home of their ancestors, and in so doing, our human experience can feel and sense the profound flow of energy that courses between animal and land and back again, where if we choose to partake in that stream of energy that sometimes feels like a river, our daily lives will be that much richer by far because we have selected perhaps the best part of ourselves to continue to remain united with other species on this untamed in reality planet of experiment and experience. And at least that's how the animals see it. Thanks for listening today. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. I offer all new clients a free 15-minute consultation. To schedule online, go to lizanneflynn.com. Come and find me on social media, Facebook, X-Twitterverse, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I encourage you to sign up for my quarterly newsletter on my website, where I also post notices for upcoming events, the starting date of courses in the Animals Eye View Academy, and online psychic fairs. The episodes of this podcast are available on my YouTube channel, complete with subtitles. You'll find that link in my podcast footer and be sure to subscribe. This has been the Animal's Eye View podcast. I'll see you next time. Thank you.